know, you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain. Hello, sweet dorks. We are new to who? Whether you don't know the old and only the new, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. And I'm JR. Hey, hey. welcome JR. <laughs> nice one. We've got JR Southall from the Blue Box podcast with us this time. JR, thank you so much for joining us. We've got an absolute classic lined up. It is... The Robots of Death. <laughs> yes. Such a good name. I love it when it's something of death. That's so 1970s, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> It's always uh, Planet of Death, City of Evil, City of Death, Planet of the Face of Death. It's great. I just love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't yeah. miss. Um, so this one's... Uh, it's season 14. Yeah. Yeah. It's the second last story of season 14, leading up into the last one, The Talons of Wing Chiang, and following on from Face of Evil, where we have been introduced to a new companion. It's Leela. Leela. Yeah. Leela. She's great. Played by Louise Jamison. She's wonderful. Uh, and it's Tom Baker as our doctor. Hey, classic. Yay. Is this getting close to the end of Hinchcliffe? It's just about to cross over to Graham Williams? It is it is the penultimate Hinchcliffe story. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's steeped in the in the Hinchcliffian uh, uh, tropes, I suppose. Like gothic sort of horror and... Yeah, yeah, a great deal of horror and gore in this one, which is par for the course for yeah. Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Actual gore. There's like blood on the hand of that <laughs> robot. I was pretty surprised this time to see that. Yeah, yeah. This is... Well, the Hinchcliffe thing. Everybody says gothic horror, but actually... To me, it's more, what film can we rip off this week? <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, definitely. So whereas uh, William's sort of mind's literary uh, uh, antecedents and, and Christopher H. Bidmead's uh, era with J&T looks at science, this is really um, hammer horror, really, and, uh, and a classic Hollywood um, film, which is the inspiration for a lot of these storylines. Yeah, this one wears its influences pretty heavily on it. Like, it's pretty, they're pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. So, JR, what do you make of this one? Why is, why is this such a good one, do you think? Do you know what? I honestly can't really say because the more you watch it and the more you get used to it and the more time goes on, the more you think, actually, as a story, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Yes. It is. And normally when you look, yeah, normally when you look at the Doctor Who stories you really like, they're the ones with all sorts of levels and layers. Mm -hmm. And there are levels and layers here, but the actual plot has really not got a lot going for it. It is exceptionally well written in terms of character and dialogue exceptionally well produced in mm -hmm. terms of design and you know production mm. and exceptionally well directed well apart from there are a couple of things which i'm sure we'll get to but in terms of the cast and you know basically it's entirely in studio apart from a couple of bits that are in um you know, the usual film cutaway at Ealing. Yeah. But apart from that, it's entirely in studio, and yet it looks gorgeous mm. yeah, it look in great. a way that a lot of studio stories don't. Studios often just point the camera and make sure their actors are in the frame, but some of the directors would come in, and here you've got an example of one of them where they're actually thinking about what they're doing and thinking about all the levels of production. And so actually, I think what really works about this is that it's so immersive that within about two minutes, literally two minutes, the opening scene, you're absolutely sold on what's happening. Mm. They, we were just saying that before we, we turned on, JR, we were talking about um, how this one's not particular. it's not monstrously deep, doesn't have an infinite level of layers to, to pour through, mm. but it's just tight, well-executed, good story. Mm -hmm. And it flew past when we watched it. We watched it last night just as a last-minute catch-up. Yeah. It flew by. Like, it was, uh, it was great. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was watching it yesterday, and the first episode, I was thinking, 25 minutes, okay, fair enough, sit down, and then uh, what felt like a few minutes later, I'm thinking, well, hang on, we're almost at the cliffhanger here. <laughs> and I suddenly realised I'd watched 22 minutes. And they and the exposition's really, really concise. Like, uh, they sort of build a little world with just a few words here and there, and then they don't, yeah, they don't, there's not really a need to fill up the whole first episode with exposition. They get straight into it. It's great. No, exactly. They sell you on the people. They sell you that they're real people, which is what's... <laughs> yeah, Agatha that's Christie, the hardest... murder mystery yeah, cast, yeah. room full of potential suspects. But that's the hardest thing to do in science fiction, is sell you on a society and that the people who live in that society are real functioning people mm. with jobs and lives and families and so forth mm. you know with emotions and desires and all this kind of stuff and that very first scene absolutely entirely sells you on these people that they're real people yeah there's some beautiful robert holmes world building in there mm. there's that wonderful uh, exchange between borg and chubb about the uh, <laughs> the robot uh, masseuse who takes off the uh, the arm <laughs> There was a Vox therapist in Caldwell City, specially programmed, equipped with vibro-digit subcutaneous stimulators, the lot. You know what happened, Borg? Its first client wanted treatment for a stiff elbow. The Vox therapist felt carefully all round the joint and then suddenly just uh, twisted his arm off at the shoulder. Shumpf! <laughs> all over in two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is a wonderful bit of world building, and there's two. I think cuts in, and she says, "I heard it was a leg." <laughs> <laughs> it's just a few lines, and in those few lines, you learn that there's a society that is entirely dependent on robot labor, mm -hmm. and um, that they're miners out on the planet, and you know, there's a way to get rich. It's great, and it's really quick, but it's just a little bit of world building. It's yeah, it's really economical that way, mm -hmm. and that's Robert Holmes at his finest. And he's our um, he's our script editor, yeah, and, uh, along with um, Hinchcliffe as our, pr our producer, and, and JR's mentioned that this is his penultimate story. Our writer, however, Chris Boucher, he's only ever this is crazy. He's only done three. He only ever did three Doctor Who scripts. Uh, and there were obviously Face of Evil and now Robots of Death, which were eight episodes in a row. And it's Image of the Fendal, which sort mm. of um, is early in the next season. And then he disappears from Doctor Who altogether. Mm. And you sort of think, how? This mm. is such a great talent. He, two of those stories, at least, are, are really wonderfully um, scripted. And All three of them, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Image of the Fendal. Yeah, I, 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 Fendal. Um, I know that it's probably the weakest of the three, but I, I really enjoy it too. Um, and it's just fascinating to me that someone so talented disappeared and in the end sort of went off to do Blake 7, but uh, never came back to Doctor He's Who. He's very prolif prolific, yeah. I was looking at his credits and there's just tons and tons of stuff, mm. uh, including Star Cops, <laughs> which I checked out this afternoon, which was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he left after he did Image of, Fendal, Image of the Fendal to do Blake 7. Mm -hmm where he spent four years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And by the time he'd finished on Blake 7, you had John Nathan Turner as the producer of Doctor Who. And as we all know, famously John Nathan Turner didn't want any holdovers from the earlier series, mm. didn't want to bring any of the earlier writers back. That's so true. I suppose... Yeah. That seems cra crazy, Once he was done on Blake 7, nobody was having him back on Doctor Who. And eventually then, yes, as you say, you get to Star Cops. But actually, after <laughs> Star Cops, he's not worked, worked much in television at all. Oh, no. Oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, man. <laughs> Star Cops kill, kill it for Butcher? We'll probably get into maybe the reasons why oh, later on. Okay, we've let's, gone that sounds spoiler let's, territory. Let's leave that yeah. one to history. <laughs> but just on, the, just on the point of his three stories, 
He does write three stories. They go out within six stories of each other. So between them, there are only three other stories. And they are all broadcast in the calendar year of 1977. Mm. So Chris Boucher's Doctor Who is entirely contained within 1977. It's astonishing, really. And our director for this one is Michael E. Bryant. We've seen him before in things like The Green Death and also... Sea Devils. This is one of my personal favourites. Yes. <laughs> that is such a comfort viewing Pertwee. I love that one. So he 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 directed yeah. he directed the sword fight scene. So if you, I'm, I feel forever in his debt. Yeah. <laughs> sword, swords and sandwiches. Yeah, it's a it's wonderful. That should be the name of a book or a record. <laughs> so Steve, if you were going to sum up this uh, this story in a crystalline, beautiful sentence, what would it be? Uh, look, this one's pretty easy. It's it's Doctor Who meets Agatha Christie meets Isaac Asimov meets Frank Herbert. Mm. And if you've read uh, things like And Then There Were None, I, Robot and June, you might know what I'm talking about. Mm. Exactly. Oh, and one more influence on this, although it's less obvious here than it is in the stories before and afterwards. This is the middle story in the Pygmalion trilogy. Oh, oh. of course. Good call. Good Definitely. The transformation of Leela from a savage to uh, an educated uh, companion, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a good yeah. pickup. And then, of course, when Philip Hinchcliffe leaves, she goes back to being an uneducated savage. <laughs> Which is such a shame. Yeah, but that that's in the future, and we're not we're not there yet. We're in good Leela time at the moment. She's, we we uh, are in good yes. Leela time. The first three, st- three stories for her are, are wonderful. So, obviously, Boucher writes uh, Robots of Death and the pre- uh, preceding story, which introduces her, which is yeah. Face of Evil. Yeah. So, obviously, he's got a real grip on the character and understands... And Bob Holmes um, rewrites, if you like, Talons of Wing Chiang and probably would have co-created Leela with Chris mm. Boucher. So he's got a good handle on her as well. So what I really like about Leela is that we kind of talked about this in um, uh, Remembrance and Curse of Fenric with the figure of Ace as a companion. She's someone who is incredibly intelligent, even if she hasn't got a formalized education. And this is this is a character who, you know, has a great deal of instinct and a great deal of, of her own kind of learning, if you like, as a quotation marks, noble savage back on her home planet, and is able to sort of bring that into this narrative. And we'll see there are a few examples of that. But yeah, Leela's a great character, mm. and I particularly like what they do with her in season 14 before, as you say, JR, they kind of let go of the promise and the, and the potential of that character in season 15. And the reason is, obviously, because Holmes and Boucher came up with this idea together and worked on this idea together. In fact, I think Robert Holmes in Talents of Wang Chiang writes that character even better than Chris Boucher has done. But then the stories get handed over to people who hadn't had anything to do yeah. with that character and who didn't really take a grasp on the idea. So Terence Dix kind of gets a little bit of it going on in um, Horror of Fang Rock, mm. much like he did with Adric in State of Decay. Mm-hmm. Terence Dix is quite good at picking these things up. <sighs> then you move on to people like Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who are just writing big, high-concept sci-fi, and Leela just kind of gets yeah. shuffled over to the side. You can always trust Terence Dix to jump in and <laughs> take the character into a good place. You can, and it's kind of understandable yeah. in a way, though, because obviously it's an entirely new production team behind the scenes for season 15, and maybe mm. that just sort of gets lost in translation, and Leela does suffer as a result, I, I think. I guess they're kind of just... Yeah. A new team comes in and they're like, yeah. well, I guess we're just um, killing time with these characters until we bring our own people in. Yeah, and it's not until season 16, really, until um, yeah. uh, Graham Williams really actually sort of gets uh, to do what he wants with the, with the yeah. programme. 
Well, exactly. Graham Williams is coming in. He's got a lot of things to think about. And, you know, development for a companion is bottom of his list yeah. until he's got his own companion who he knows what the development is because he partially creates that development. Yeah. Here, he's just like, oh, my God, I've got Doctor Who. And all of a sudden... <laughs> All of a sudden, you've got inflation going out the window and, uh, you know, he's just got other things to think about. Including uh, the fact that it's uh, Philip Hinchcliffe who puts him in a bit of a bind by overspending in his last two or three stories and doesn't it show because this looks so lush as a story. It's wonderful. Yeah. The, the, yeah, uh, the, the design on this is like it's amazing. It's like kind of Art Deco. Mm. And then you've got the, like the makeup and the costumes and the, and the sets. And the, I, like we were talking about it when we were watching it, that it, kind of the makeup and the, the sets and like the sort of ridiculously over-fashion-y costumes for space-faring miners. Hmm. And actually, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, of those three stories, this is essentially the cheap one, isn't it? Well, I suppose they've got a few more costumes and a few more extras. If you look at the number mm-hmm. of robots walking around, yeah. that they might have at other times in the series production. But it's all in studio. That's right. And, and it doesn't cost. It doesn't. Although the designs are lovely, mm-hmm. it doesn't really cost any more yeah. <laughs> to make the Vok robots yeah. than it would have any other monster at this time in the show's history. Yeah. Well, this is these beautiful costumes and beautiful sets. But then, then there's the other end of the spectrum when it constantly the camera constantly pans down to the feet of the robots. <laughs> <laughs> literally just got yeah. tinfoil really you know how people are always saying oh, it's tinfoil robots doctor who is low budget this time they're right they just strapped tinfoil to the bottom of these shoes and that's fine but don't yeah. like, why do they show them so many times it's so great. is this is this a failing one of the few failings that michael e. bryant uh, sort of displays in his role as director in this in this story mm. well there's a, there's a couple of others that i can think of what about those you, shots were, those shots were planned before they before they put the tinfoil on i'm not sure about that <laughs> jr what do you reckon but there's yeah, well, you've got to remember, we're watching this now on 50-inch screens <laughs> in high definition. Yep. Back when it was originally on, people were watching it on 18-inch screens in 625 lines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you these things that you can easily notice now, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily have noticed back then. And, and we'll get... We'll come to another instance of that <laughs> later on as well. Well, I think that's true. Uh, you because... know, once we go past spoiler warning. But, yeah. <laughs> but these things weren't always as obvious to the audience. Plus, there's a part of your brain when you're watching something like Doctor Who science fiction that kind of says, OK, you've got to suspend disbelief. And if you're one of these people who's watching it casually while you're making mm. the dinner and you've got Doctor Who on in the background, <laughs> you're just glancing at the screen every now and again anyway. You're not necessarily <laughs> focusing on the detail of what's on the screen. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's just about acceptable and you have to bear these things in mind, really. I. But yes, I... it is, <laughs> it is <laughs> looking at those tinfoil shoes. <laughs> it's pretty obvious now what's going on. I wouldn't mind if they just didn't go to them so often. <laughs> But, yeah. but um, I want to get back to the Doctor and Leela a little bit. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a pretty good era for them. Like, you were saying before about how Leela's quite like, well-written in this one. Mm. There's lots of little moments with her. The first one is yeah. that really lovely bit where they materialize in the hopper and they go out to the grill, the grate that looks out into the landscape. And they describe he describes it as you know, lifeless, no trees. It's no totally water, devoid yeah. of life or water. And she says, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that moment. Yeah. Where are the trees? There's no water, so nothing grows. Nothing at all by the look of it. It's beautiful. Mm. 
wasn't expecting her to say that, but it's just a lovely moment. Yeah, it really is. And she's got a few grace notes in this one, I think. Hmm. Well, what's really nice about that in terms of writing the character is that instead of having her say something that the writer (laughs) would say, he actually gets inside the character's brain and Mm -hmm. says, well, what would she Mm -hmm. make of this? She's never seen it before. Of course she thinks it's beautiful. The same way any one of the three of us would go to an alien planet that a bunch of aliens take entirely for granted and say, wow, look at this. Isn't it amazing? It's like nothing I've ever seen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a few examples of that throughout. Um, you know, there's a, some beautiful grace notes that um, that Leela has. You know, uh, there's, you know, we'll get into some uh, hmm. later on, I think. But uh, yeah, she really shines in this one for the, me. Yeah, they don't just write her as a dumb savage with no nope. obvious lines. No, she's far of- more complex and, and beautifully intricate than that. Hmm. Oh, and... And at the end of the story, and this goes back into spoiler territory, but <clears throat> Leela's concept of the creepy mechanical man is something that's threaded throughout the story in all the characters that she voices so perfectly because she's not understanding it from the same place as the other characters are, but mm-hmm. she's coming entirely cold to the concept. Mm-hmm. And so she's the one who sum- sums the concept up in the most perfect way, in its most perfect form by coming up with those three ideal words, creepy mechanical man. (laughs) And that describes the entirety of what this story is doing in three words. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. But we'll get back into that. (laughs) And we've got got our fourth, we've got our baker, fourth doctor. uh, He's imperious right now. It's Mm. 1977. It's what, two, three years into 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 the stints as, as the doctor. Um, he's very much come to grips with the part, and uh, if there was a man born to play Doctor Who, it, it's Tom Baker, and, and this is him at his zenith for me, I think. Wonder where we are. You mean you don't know? Well, not precisely, no. You mean you can't control this machine? Well, of course I can control it. Nine times out of ten. Well, seven times out of ten. Five times. Look. Never mind. Let's see where we are. You won't need that. How do you know? I never carry weapons. If people see you, mean them no harm. They never hurt you. Nine times out of ten. Possibly not yet at his meanest. Not on screen, but uh, <laughs> no. off screen by the sounds of things, uh, he, he wasn't particularly nice to uh, Louise Jamison. Yeah, you told me that. I didn't know that. Well, when Louise Jamison came in, Tom Baker had famously mm. asked if he could carry on without a companion at all. <laughs> and he did. They wrote a story to prove to him that, no, you can't do that. Only, of course, Robert Holmes wrote it so well that in actual fact, it proved entirely the opposite thing, that Tom Baker could quite happily carry on as the Doctor without a companion. And I suspect that it's because that had worked so well that when Jameson came in, and by the way, I should say, Louise Jameson is, in my opinion, the best actress ever to have played a Doctor Who companion. But when she came in, Tom Baker had resentment for the fact that they had brought somebody in. And for the first several months that they were working together, he he resented her presence in such a way that... I mean, there are all sorts of stories about it, and it's hard to know exactly how much of all this is true. Because one of the things they say is... If you watch any of the stories, he never looks her in the eye on the screen. Yeah. So he's always given her the cold shoulder on the screen. That's not actually true, because right from the start of this story, there's a scene where he is looking her directly in the eyes. 
So that's not entirely true, but it's probably partially true. And it's probably also partially true that when they're on set, he's not talking to her and all this kind of thing. And eventually Louise Jameson goes to him and basically gives him a bit of an earful and says, you can't really treat somebody like this. And at that point, Tom Baker, because Tom Baker responds to when Mm. people stand up to him, (laughs) Tom Baker mellows and says... No, you're absolutely right. And from that point forward, the relationship mellows considerably, such that nowadays they'll quite happily go into the studio together and do Big Finish and be the best of friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so true that like there isn't any of that um, sort of acrimony between the two of them at this point, off screen, uh, seeping on screen. In fact, you mm. know, you have a look at that first sequence of them together in the TARDIS where the Doctor, in a, if you want to show someone who's never seen the show before by the way like a, a pure piece of doctor yeah. who magic you have to show them that that example of the, yeah. the two boxes which one's bigger which one's smaller the explanation of how the tardis is bigger on the inside that is such a beautiful scene mm-hmm. and and tom and uh, louise are perfect in it uh, such wonderful chemistry now which is larger <laughs> that one but it looks smaller well that's because it's further away exactly if you could keep that, exactly that distance away, and have it here, the large one would fit inside a small one. That's silly. That's transdimensional engineering, a key Time Lord discovery. You'd never, you'd never know that off-screen that they're not, uh, not warming to one another. No. And that's a, but there's also something else going on with Tom Baker, in that he is kind of on-screen treating everybody like that by this point. Mm. And I think Robots of Death is a really good example of Mm. it. Maybe we'll get more into that later, but Tom Baker really treats all the characters the same way he treats Leela here. He's short with them. He's curt with them. It's Famously, there's that scene in Pyramids of Mars where he does the I walk in eternity bit, where Sarah Jane Smith is saying to him, (laughs) look, you know, we're human beings this is amazing and he has to remind her that he's not a human being and he spends pyramids of mars treating the um the two brothers the skarman brothers brothers. yeah Yeah, one of them's already dead and he's a walking zombie (laughs) and the other one's going to die and you know the fourth doctor is saying look i don't care if that one's dead i don't care if this one's gonna die it's his own fault we've got bigger things to look at Years later, of course, you'd get with the 12th Doctor almost exactly the same thing in Season 8, Series 8. And people are saying, oh, no, they've gone back Mm. to uh, the 6th Doctor and said, right, let's do the 6th Doctor story right. But no, actually, what they're going back to is stories like Pyramids of Mars and the Robots of Death, Mm -hmm. where you get scenes of Tom Baker doing lines of dialogue like, you know, you're the perfect example of the inverse ratio, that famous <laughs> quote, <laughs> which is a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant quote, but it kind of sums up the fourth doctor at this point in that while he's not unfriendly and he's not lacking kindness, that friendliness and kindness are exhibiting themselves in such different ways that he's a bit of a pompous twit in the same way as people are always accusing, you know, John Pertwee's third doctor of being. But he gets away with it by being Tom Baker, who's also (laughs) so charismatic on screen 
that he could be as horrible as he likes to people, and st- people and the audience just thinks he's wonderful because he's Tom. <laughs> he definitely carries on from the way he was in when we covered um, Terror of the Zygons, and he was sort of treating yeah thing, human affairs as trivial, and then even even going even further back, Pertwee treating he's being the smartest man in the room. Yeah, I, th- I think the Doctor, but, mm-hmm. but definitely um, Tom Baker, and and his this particular point in time, uh, his his view is sort of set on a much larger universal scale. He doesn't sort of have time for the human niceties, I suppose, in the same way that Capaldi did in, in, in Series 8. Um, and, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's not that it's to say that it is a, a lasting uh, trait of the Doctor, but it is something that comes to the fore every now and then. And that sort of alienness that we've spoken about back when we did Terror of the Saigons of Tom Baker as the Doctor really adds to that, I think. Yeah, there's a he definitely has a sort of... Um a snootiness or something mm-hmm. a kind of a kind of snobbiness about the people all around him <laughs> as if as if he just thinks nobody here is thinking as objectively about what's going on as i am and he doesn't have time for their trivial <laughs> little sort of side stories all right, we're uh, it looks like we're heading into spoiler territory oh, it's the- a sandstorm on the horizon there all right it's coming up so uh, trimming vents Closing scoops. Activate the lasers and probe. All right. All right, lovely. Into spoilers. All right. Fantastic. Cool. And we're into spoiler territory. Here we go. Once again, for the millionth time, if you haven't watched the episode <laughs> or seen it a million times, uh, go go and check it out now and then come back. Mm-hmm. And welcome back. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to that very first scene then that we were talking about yes. a few minutes ago. <laughs> because in that very first scene, you do have that conversation between Chubb and Borg. And mm-hmm. by the way, when um, Chubb gets killed off early in the story, that's a real disappointment because he's a great character and a great actor. And we're definitely in spoiler territory now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that scream when he but gets the... killed is really blood I was not expecting that to be yeah, so Yeah, that's one of the great Doctor Who death screams for yeah. sure. <laughs> but the other thing that's happening in that first scene is... Dask joins in the conversation and if you know the story his every line in that first scene is basically the cam- the character looking across at the camera putting his finger in the air and saying by the way it's me it's me <laughs> he's so staunch he's in his got- defense of robots isn't he yeah, and he's sinister he's sort of a little bit sinister for, from the get-go yeah but it's kind, of, it's kind of lost for me i didn't i didn't notice that this, this time because i've forgotten the forgotten who it was i knew it was <laughs> one of them but uh i forgot who it was because i was just so because it's a little bit dazzled by all the, the costuming and the crazy makeup and stuff and also um, yeah yeah pamela salem oh my lord um yeah but it's also it, it's also in his dialogue he talks about each Vok robot having a million multi-level yeah. constrainers mm-hmm. in its circuitry and stuff like this oh and he talks about what it would take to get a Vok robot to start going around killing people <laughs> it's almost like he is flagging it up <laughs> he is, isn't it? yeah yeah, there's a lot of heavy hints that's, there, and that's really getting into sort of Asimov territory, where they they won't even countenance the well, they won't they won't even they won't even consider the idea that um, a robot could be could those be three laws of robotics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, responsible for murder. And mm-hmm. um, I think later on in the episode, they talk about oh, the Doctor says that it would um, crumble their civilization, and it's like, so interesting to me. And it's very it's very much like Asimov that. If you know if word gets out that robots, things that people have lived with for their whole lives, and their society depends totally on if, they, if someone found out that a robot could murder a person, mm. then it would just bring their entire society grinding to a halt. 
Well, the Asimov, the Asimov stories in iRobot and the second one, iRobot Again, or whatever it's called, there's two, aren't there? There's a couple of really good full novels. There's The Caves of Steel and a couple other ones where, yeah. where there's a human detective and his robot uh, partner. Mm. They're really good. They're, they're basically locked room mysteries, aren't they? Where the locked room, rather than being a room, is the robot's programming. Yeah. And you've got to work out... In, in iRobot, you've got to work out how does the robot get through past its programming yeah. and do the thing you didn't think it would be able to do there's always a loophole or something there's always some kind of way that they've done exactly it. in he in robots of death they ignore the loophole it's not that clever it's not that <laughs> he just reprograms it goes it. that yeah. far yeah it's literally just a character reprogramming the robots which is you know a simple way of getting around yeah. it so it doesn't go for the intelligent option that <laughs> isaac asimov was doing but it does relate back to it in that this is the same locked room as the mm. robot programming represents. And they don't even get to the possibility that it could have been a robot for quite a while. They're just uh, throwing, no. throwing it around at each other, which is mm. really fun when they're in the room all snapping at each other. And Borg Borg just gets up and he's like a big thug. And then you've got a pool who's, um, you know, kind of sneering. And then, yeah, and each one's got their own character. I love that. Actually, Borg's a great character. And I think um, he's... Um, He's not appreciated as much as he should be. That character, I think. I don't. I don't think Brian Croucher gets as much appreciation as he deserves for Borg. People will say, "Oh, he's just bolshy and all this all the way through." He's not. There's actually a lot of subtlety in his performance in that first scene, and he becomes bolshy when his world gets turned upside down. When you've got people like the Doctor and Leela appearing out of nowhere. I mean, how do they get onto that ship? These people don't know about the TARDIS. <laughs> so you can imagine a character like Borg being angry, being mm. suspicious. But in that first scene, he has some nice, subtle moments that show how the character develops from one thing to the other. Yeah. As the story is starting to get out of everybody's control. I like it when he gets defensive and his carriage immediately shifts and he's kind of a little bit menacing when he stands up. But um, yeah, he's great. And yeah, I just, yeah. whenever he's got, he's on the screen doing things, I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time. I find his reaction to being offered a jelly baby absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Would you like a jelly baby? Shut up! Simple enough, thank you would have been sufficient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the wonderful look of disgust and alarm on his face as he swats away the bag of jelly babes is fantastic. <laughs> that is something that comes from Chris Boucher because, of course, jelly babies have a nice scene in the face of evil mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's the bit where the doctor, I'll kill you with this deadly, deadly jelly baby. <laughs> so, so Bowger is obviously looking at what the tools of Doctor Who are and saying, right, okay, so jelly babies is not an important thing, but it's something that we can use in the script to give you an insight into the characters. Yeah, definitely. And, and those, those characters we were talking before stitched together so well here. It is like an Agatha Christie mm. sort of story. Mm. Um, each one's got a background and, and the interrelationships between them, how they all sort yeah. of come to be on the ship is also quite believable too. Um, Paul's wonderful, you know, it's David Collins, who we see again in Mordred Undead, don't we, in yeah. season 20 with Peter Davison. He's a really fine, act, fine actor, I think. Um, and, you know, he's got that, uh, uh, the D84 robot um, in his quest to sort of uncover the, um, the Zilda's brother's subplot. Yeah, that's a tiny bit Asimov, that like sort of human robot partner Yeah, thing. totally. You know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. And I love, I just love um, David Collins in this. He's just like, and in the end he gets to ham it up and be... Robophobia, crazy. Mm, yeah. so <laughs> More on that later. Well, yeah. I have got to say, David Collins, 
I love him as an actor, yeah. and I think it's a great performance. I don't think it quite fits. He Although I tell you what does fit about him is that they seem to have given him a haircut exactly the same as you've as got the on the robots. robots. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've each got so little time to sort of um, get their characters going, except for a, mm. for a few, you know, some of the people get killed pretty quickly. Um, and then you've got... The one that people always single out is um, Tanya Rogers. Zilda. Zilda. Yeah, yeah, she's pretty bad. <laughs> she, yeah. <laughs> You? you thought you'd get away with it, What are you doing in my quarters? You filthy murderer! Douche! Take you over! You filthy, disgusting murder animal! You've gone off on his way down. What's wrong, Zilda? Zilda! Killings. They've affected her mind. She, she's not great, but I. But even she has a couple of nice moments. There's a bit where... Um, I can't remember the line of dialogue. One of the characters says something to her like, you know, stick that in your oar and sail with it or whatever. <laughs> and she has this great, there's just a cutaway just for two seconds and this great look of her wrinkling her nose and going back to what she was doing. <laughs> it's just when she opens her mouth. Really, I like it, it when she argues when she's having her argument with um, Ivanov. That's just a great little bit. And he's just really, really nasty. He even gets right in her face at one point, like, like, like an inch away from my yeah. face. It's really gross. I re- okay, I, I think the character of Zilda is actually quite interesting, um, particularly with the relationship uh, with Ivanov. I just want to talk about that in a second. Mm. But I think, the, the tears aside, I think I can live with the performance, but the, the crying scene is, is probably the one thing in the whole story that I think really I can't forgive. I can forgive you know, yeah. a number of other things that we'll probably talk about later on in terms of the direction in particular, but it's the, uh, the absolute, you know... Uh, grade school kind of performance from uh, from that sure. um, from her in that particular scene that I think lets it down. But what's really fascinating, I think, in terms of Zildra is the way in which she's portrayed as you know one of the descendants of the uh, you know the, f- the first twenty families that have founded the the planet there. And so there's you know all these associations of class and Ivanov's ambition in that regard. And right. It's interesting because later on we have that that comment after Zildra's dead that it's sort of, you know, it's a bit of stream of conscious and he starts talking about how perhaps potentially, this is the way that I see it anyway, potentially he sort of had plans for her or he was romantically interested in her. And I, I, I don't know if, if that's born or motivated by anything more than just wanting to marry into a descendant <coughs> of one of those first 20 families because he's so ambitious as a character. He wants, he's like sort of an upper middle class guy who's trying to yes. make that leap into upper class, which you can never really make. Yeah, unless really he that. marries into it or, you know, has, uh, has his own descendants to, um trace that bloodline back and that's why and that's like ties into why he's so he's just so mean to everyone beneath him he's just kind of until the end he's pretty snipish and pretty sharp well yeah it's a sort of trait of you know people who are particularly ambitious in in terms of class in that way they're always kicking down and perhaps even sort of uh, not willing to admit you know their own origins as well in terms of their class and it's another great example of Chris Boucher understanding his characters and being able to empathize with them in that he is not just one character or a couple of characters or similar that he gets. He gets everybody, he understands everybody, and he gives everybody in the entire story realistic motivations and reactions. And they, they all get a bit of development. Like, mm-hmm. no one's really left behind. Except, I yeah. guess Chubbs kill pretty quick, but like, uh, and, and Cass doesn't get a, an awful lot. But everyone gets a little, more than I, I would have expected for such a big cast. 
But I think even Chubb comes across in just the two scenes, the three scenes maybe that he's in. I think Chubb comes across as another honest, mm, real character. Sure. I, just in a few lines of dialogue. That opening scene where it's... You know, any other writer would not have given that opening scene to somebody he's about to kill off in his very next scene. <laughs> but Chris Boucher does. He puts Chubb right at the centre of that first scene as if he's going to be mm. one of the central characters. And as an audience, we know it's called the Robots of Death. <laughs> so it looks like Chubb is being set up to be the guy who discovers that it's the robots who are doing the killing mm. because he's talking in this first scene about this robot that pulls somebody's arm off. Chubb, for all the world, looks like he's being set up to be an integral part of the way the plot unfolds. Mm. And two minutes later, he's dead. <laughs> it's like psycho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, yeah. You think he's going to be a big part of the story and then mm. he's wiped out just like psycho. Yeah. Um, but then we've also got, um, uh, like, we've got Cass and Zilda, two people of colour on a, on a show in the late 70s on Doctor Who. That's, is that unusual? That's, that seems unusual to me, right? Um, they would do that in the future set stories, sure. going back as far as about the Tenth Planet and things like the Moon Base. They would mm. have people of color, people of different ethnic backgrounds, to give to give to, to coin a phrase to give color to the idea that this is set in the future. future. Sure, but but yeah, but, yeah. but two. I find because there's there's I've, yeah there's often been one mm. in, like one person of color or a different ethnic background inserted in, but to have two at once is kind of unusual, and it's uh, yeah. And to give one of them, to give Zilda quite a central part yeah, yeah. in it as well, because she is essentially, she is the focus of the subplot. Hmm. The sort of main subplot is what's happened with Yuvanov yeah. and Zilda's brother, mm. as we get to discover at the end of the story. So she's actually, even though she doesn't survive to the end of the story, she's actually quite central to the undercurrent that's underpinning the main story. Yeah, that stuck out for me. It seemed, yeah, it seemed unusual. It for the stuck time. out for me, and the other thing in terms of representation that stuck out oh, for me yeah. is that we have two women on board. On so this crew. is this is pretty rare, I think, it's, it's, for a Hinchcliffe and Holmes story. Uh, two yeah. not incidental characters, but uh, characters who are not in the leads. So you know, we've got Toos, who <laughs> Pamela Salem. She's amazing. Yes, she is wonderful on, in so many ways, um, as well as um, Zilda's character as well. You know where this comes from. This comes from the influence of Agatha Christie. Because although yeah. Agatha Christie's stories were largely white, <laughs> what Agatha Christie would do is say, right, here are eight characters, and she would make those eight characters as distinct from one another as possible, mm. so that each of them would have a reason to be either the murderer or the next sure. victim, because they have all these distinguishing characteristics. Do that on television instead of in a novel. Do it 50, 60 years later. What do you do? People of colour. Those become their distinguishing characteristics. And now everybody who's in the cast, you say, ah, there's that guy. Ah, there's that girl. Now, what is it about that guy that makes me think either A, I can suspect them of being the one who's responsible, or B, that they might have a reason to become the next victim. So these are the this is the Agatha Christie influence mm. in that throw as many distinguishing characteristics as all the characters as possible to keep the audience on their toes. I, I just love how they they transpose that sort of um, murder mystery trope of like a group of different people sitting around an opulent drawing room <laughs> while a brilliant detective stalks around yeah. trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> 
But of course, we've got, you know, Toos, Pilot Toos. She's given quite an important role on the ship and an important part in the narrative as well, Pamela Salem. Not only she's a, is she a wonderful and mesmeric sort of screen presence as well, mm. but she's a wonderful actress. The the part, though, stands up too. What's really interesting, I think, from the start almost, we're positioned to see her almost as outside the Doctor and Leela, the main heroic character in this. And, and as, a, as a female character in that, I think it's quite novel or at least unusual in a, mm. in a Hinchcliffe and Holmes story. <laughs> yeah, it's all men. It's, yeah. it's all men with Hinchcliffe and, Hinchcliffe and Holmes, isn't it? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the men in this are either angry <laughs> or you know mm-hmm. have some reason some reason to some some kind of flaw or quirk or whatever some reason to be the kind of people that the doctor can't trust whereas Toos is straight down the line yep. argues with the guys who are giving yeah. you the reason not to trust them about those reasons yeah. they're giving not to trust them she is and although it's 2 years before it happens she is the uh, Ripley of the cast, isn't she? Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, I can see that, definitely. She's definitely a focal point of the story. Um, when there's less Doctor and less Leela stuff happening, she's um, she's almost a lead, and I think she, was re- she really takes charge. She's really great. Yeah, we see a lot of yeah. her commanding the ship yeah. uh, and the robots as well, you know, underlining her competence and uh, the character who's in charge here. She's got a lot of agency, which yeah. is unusual. Yeah, yeah definitely. And That's a good word for it. She's great. I, I just have always loved her in Remembrance. Because Remembrance mm. is the story that I watched over and over as a kid. So yeah. <laughs> she's burned, into my, yeah, burned yeah. into my brain. And so watching, getting to watch her again, um, like, you know, 20 years before is, just, is such a pleasure. <laughs> it's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. She's also maybe Chris Boucher making up for the fact that other than Leela, there are no female characters in the face of evil whatsoever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and that is, sadly, face of evil is rather more the template for the, you know, these three years of uh, Doctor Who under Hinchcliffe and Holmes that Robots of Death is because there aren't many female characters no, so across those three years, are there? It's a real failing of the era if there is a failing of... Uh, and, you know, there's got to be some, but, you know, it's such a high point in Doctor Who, those three yeah. years. It is definitely a failing. It's, it's so obvious looking back at it with modern eyes. It's like, oh, gosh, there's so few women and positive women roles in these mm. in these stories. And it's three years worth of stories as well. So yeah. it's a pattern. There. It's not an accident. Mm. It's almost like they looked at Sarah Jane Smith and then later on looked at Leela and said, well, that's got that covered, hasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Can we talk about the characters, in particular the the use of some of their names? Oh, um, yeah. Just to sort of unpack this for, for our listeners. This is Butcher being sweet clever. dogs. Yeah, I think Badger's really clever here. You know, Ivanov's obviously a, a play or a sort of corruption of Asimov, who we talked about previously in terms mm. of iRobot. Ah, uh, true, yeah. So I think that's definitely there. Taron Capel as the, the alter ego of, of Dask um, is, is a play on the... Uh, Czech, I think it was a playwright, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, Karel Čapek, who who sort of invented the term robot, robot. which is actually in, in many Eastern European tongues uh, the word for work. So that's where our, our term robot comes from. Paul obviously is yes. is, is, is related to um, Paul, Paul Anderson as the mm-hmm. uh, sci-fi novelist, and I think even the use of the word bo- uh, the name Borg. Yeah. You know, it's you know the cyborg obviously sums up the imagery. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's quite uh, a novel. Um, a clever sort of use of the um, you know, corruptions of, of sci-fi related names in the story just to sort of underline the the uh, influences that go into it. There's a few funny little writery bits like that where Boucher puts in like um, 
fear of robots is they, they call it Grimwade syndrome, I think, and that's <laughs> supposed to be because yeah, yeah, Peter, because Grimwade was so sick of uh, his stories. They all seem to involve robots. In so them. Peter Grimwade, um, for those of us who don't know, it was it was behind the scenes. What was he, an associate floor Back manager then. or something mm-hmm. like that? Um, later went on to become a director and a writer for, in the eighties yeah. uh, for Javison. And we've got and we've got our robots. So what do we? What did you guys think of that? I love the robots in this. They're uh, they're not without their flaw. They're they're shiny flaws. But I like the design and they're creepy and they've got hair. Like, <laughs> they've got yeah. great 70s hair, like pools. There is a great moment um, quite early in the first episode. I think it's when they bring the doctor into the um, into the control centre and the <laughs> this is the director should have done something about this. So this is uh, me preempting a conversation on the robots by pointing <laughs> something funny out. But the director is focusing on the robot who's just standing there as the door opens and the doctor gets brought into the room. So obviously the robot is not the focus. It's one of those classic directorial things. You point the camera at one thing and then something else happens and you realise that the other thing is the focus. But the guy who's standing in the robot costume obviously hasn't been told to stand like a robot. <laughs> so he's just kind of slumped in the corner of the room, looking as if he's waiting for the camera to pan away so he can bugger off and have a fag. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hilarious moment. It's just so stupid. And really, Michael E. Bryant should have said to him, look, you're a robot. Stand up straight. Stop slouching. Put your head, you know. But it's hilarious. But, but having said that, the great thing about the robots, and P- it's one of those things, there's a great monster in a really memorable story, mm. and people always mm. say about that, oh, they should come back, they should have had another go. And one of the things about this story is, and we'll talk about D84 later, but there have been so many conversations online and elsewhere in podcasts, whatever. D84, he's brilliant. He should have been a companion for a few stories. Is D84, is D84 the dumb that can talk? Yeah. People want him to come back? Yes. Really? Oh, they wanted him to be a companion. Man, you told me this last night, Steve. Yeah, I, find no, so I don't agree. I, don't, I, I, don't, I can't crazy. see how it would work. Go, go on, JR. I love him. I love him, <laughs> love him. as a character. Mm-hmm. I love the robots yep. for their calm, yeah. measured delivery of absolutely everything. Sure. But beyond four episodes in a story that is about that calm, measured delivery, and that, after all, is the plot of this. How can these creatures with this calm, measured delivery, who program not to kill, become the killers? Imagine those robots turning up elsewhere and they would very quickly become extremely irritating. <laughs> D84. Can you imagine D84 in Image of the Fender? He's the most <laughs> annoying character. And there's a few characters who grate on me. In, I mean, they're meant to grate. But like his delivery, I'm not sure what the choice is there, but it's... It was, okay, so it kept, I've, I've got a got theory, theory about this, yeah. It just, kept, it just bugged me so much. No, I, look, I, I understand the, the, the choice. I think it works within the context, as JR says, of the four episodes, and I don't think it can extend yeah. much beyond that because mm. D84's got an arc, and the arc mm. goes just over the course of this, this one story. And it's essentially that here is a, a character, a full-blown character, who um, is meant to sort of signal that he's somewhere between, you know, the... Mm. the uh, uh, the intelligence of a robot, which you know, advanced as it is, doesn't have self-awareness, mm. and a human, in, you yeah. know, someone like like Paul, for instance, who's his partner in uh, in you know the police force or whatever the case is. So I think the way that um, it's been pitched by 
pitched by Gregory DePolno, who's the actor who, who, who plays him, is that, well, how do I get between essentially, you know, uh, a machine a machine through to a, to a fully grown human? I think he pitches it as a childhood. Child. So we have these sort of childlike deliveries of... I had overlooked the possibility of substitution. Yes, you had. I have failed. Yes. Oh, come on. Don't be upset. Yes, you failed, you failed. But congratulations, failure is one of the basic freedoms. And those sort of intonations of a child who realises that he's failed or let someone down and, you know, sort of a plaintive kind of uh, delivery to it, even up to until his last line, you know, goodbye, uh, my friend, he says. Mm. It's very touching, but it's also, you know, quite childlike. And I think it's a, it's, it's a creative choice by the actor to sort of say, look... Uh, in the same way that a child is sort of halfway through to maturity to, you know, a full, fully grown human adult, but different from uh, from a machine, I think he's pitched it in that way. The problem with that is once you get to the end of that story and it pays off in the way that it pays off in that self-sacrifice that he does, which is, you know, very touching and noble I as a character. I was very relieved when he exploded. <laughs> I think that's the end of the story. And, and then to yeah. go on to JR's great point. Yeah, how does this character, how does this metallic man appear in Image of the Fender? How does he appear in Victorian London next week in uh, Talons of Wing Chiang? It's incredibly problematic. I was only going to say, and you know what they do, instead of, and this is obviously not deliberate, but essentially, if you look at the sort of overview of those few years, what they do is they create K9 yep, to be a sure. version of D84 mm-hmm. that does work in those other stories. So that the... the the tweaks, the differences that they've made mm. are what means that you can have, not in Image of the Fendal, because obviously this is before they even knew it was going to be in the story. Yeah, yeah. But by the time you get to the Stones of Blood, for example, mm-hmm. K9 can work in those stories because they've tweaked the concept. Yeah, I agree. And the delivery. I, yeah. I love the idea of D84. It's, it's kind of very creepy. A robot that shouldn't talk and should be the lowest form of robot has a real, personal, real personality. Mm. And he's, uh, you know, he says, don't tell anyone and I can talk and I keep it a secret. Well, I've got a couple of things to add about D84. One of which is that he's deliberately in the he's deliberately in the story to demonstrate that robots can be reprogrammed, despite the fact that it's called the Robots of Death, and the audience knows from minute one that the robots have been reprogrammed. (laughs) But he's there to show how it can be done. But the other thing is, I think the reason his um, delivery throughout the whole thing is so depressed and so sad and so feeling sorry for himself is because he is a robot who has been programmed to believe that robots cannot kill who is there to investigate killer robots Ah, yeah that's a good one i like that there's some sort of existential (laughs) crisis going on in in those uh ai circuits of his yeah so so sadness you're going for sadness yeah cool just going (laughs) yeah yeah i can see that he's the He's the um, he's the robots of death equivalent of the guy who's been offered a deal to dob his mates in instead of getting to prison. <laughs> he's got to betray his own kind who have disappointed him so badly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It works on so many levels, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I'll run. With I, that. I hope you guys are right, but um, I want to believe you guys. I just uh, I, I hate to hear before. I hate him. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm also going to take this opportunity to tell my uh, D84 story once again in that I was in Lloyd's Bank once and obviously the voice actor Gregory DePolney does voice work 
I was in uh, Lloyd's Bank once, standing in a queue <laughs> waiting to get to the teller, and all of a sudden, D84 announces, could the person with ticket number 32 please go to counter B? <laughs> and I'm standing there in Lloyd's Bank with all these people just standing there, minding their own business, kind of thinking, oh my God, <laughs> the robots of death are upon me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great you just, did you just freeze yeah QJR yeah. just running out of the Lloyd's Bank branch <laughs> <laughs> it was a very it was a very surreal moment brilliant <laughs> I, I do I do I do love the delivery of the robots I love how they didn't give them metallic robot voices they just gave them the voice of some bloke which mm. I really like that it adds to that creepy uncanny valley it's very calm that's the great thing about it yeah it's a little bit like taking the Cybermen and saying right humanize the cyberman's voice but keep the dispassionate delivery mm, yeah yeah actually that's a really good point that you touch on dan um what's really fascinating about the design is that they're not metallic sort of you know faceless faceless borgs yeah exactly that they are made to look like humans and it's an interesting um sort of parallel that they've got the the facial makeup of the yeah. of the humans sort of very much mirrors the the lines on the, the robots the brows as well. and the, all the way down the, the nose line yeah definitely and it's it's a sort of fascinating insight into the not just the dependence on robots, but maybe even the sort of robophilia of this this society that you know we definitely see with um, with Dask. There's you know which way around is it? Did the humans copy the robots? <laughs> Did the, or the robots made in the in the image of the humans? It's it's really uh, quite a creepy sort of idea. And that you know what you mentioned before about the uncanny okay. valley. This is this goes back yeah. to this concept that we looked at right back. I think it was with Saigons and Autons in our first couple of episodes. Mm. This idea that um, there's something that is quite alike to to humans, but isn't obviously exactly like us. That sends us into this very sort of creepy place. That uh, you know, whether it's Grimwald syndrome or whatever it, whatever the case is, it sits very uneasy with us. We note we notice that they're too similar to us, whilst at the same time not being like us. Um, and and that sort of uncanny valley effect um, um, happens at that point. It's supposed to be a curve, isn't it? Like the mm, um, yeah. the, uh, the closer you know, robots get to looking like humans, the more terrifying they are. And the, yeah. these people chose deliberately to make their um, robots look like people. Yeah. Are you hurt? Please go away. They know I talk to you. They watch me all the time. They hate me. They did what I told them, but only because that gave them the power. You see. Do you mean the robots? Not robots. Walking dead. They pretend we control them, but but really, but really. And I don't think they quite pull it off because it is a very stylized design. So when yep. they get into talking about that stuff as part of the um, you know the uncanny uncanny valley sort of element of the plot the robophobia mm-hmm. bit i don't think it quite works because they are so stylized but i think where it does work is in those voices in that yeah, they do true. just sound like people who just don't care about anything frankly. <laughs> yeah. i will kill the others i hate my job <laughs> yeah it's bizarre and on a to go back to something we were talking about earlier but on this sort of subject of the robophobia in the uncanny valley David Collins' hair. Everybody (laughs) on that ship is given a very different hairstyle, Mm -hmm. but not a hairstyle that you would have seen walking down the street in 1977 (laughs) or 1976 when it was being made. They're all given 
And this goes back to what I was saying about Agatha Christie and making everybody distinctive, yeah, yeah. giving them distinguishing yeah. characteristics. Crazy hats. But, but for Poole, for David Collins' character, they have chosen him to give this to give him the same hairstyle as the robots themselves have got, which makes you wonder whether it was purely by coincidence, or it makes you wonder he's the investigator. He's also um, the one who does suffer from robophobia. Have they deliberately, you know, in the production, and done it not so ostentatiously that watching it you would notice, but have they deliberately given him the same hairstyle? That's a design choice. Kind of flag up that these things are going to be revealed about his character. And maybe also to throw him in as a red herring about who the villain might be. Nice. He's the guy with the same haircut. He must be the villain. And he's also acting suspiciously, obviously, (laughs) because he's the investigator. (laughs) Yeah. Be careful of him, Doctor. He's not what he seems. Why do you say that? Will you move like a hunter? Watch all the time. I just reckon that's David Collins' actual hair and he refused to have it changed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. He's the only one who's allowed to keep his own haircut because it is so wild and weird in the first place. How dare you suggest that I change my before? <laughs> he he walks into hair and makeup and they say, well, we had all these plans for what to do to your hair, but I mean, my God, you've walked in with it looking like that. Keep it. It's such 70s, gloriously 70s hair. Mm. Of course, he's most famous for his role in um, Sapphire and Steel, isn't he? Yeah, I've never dug into Sapphire uh, and Steel. Joanna Lomley, yeah. (laughs) Well, he comes in as the third one. Silver, is it, I think? Mm -hmm. David Collings? Yeah, that's right. Because you've got Sapphire and Steel, and then in the... If I think, if I remember rightly, in the second series, they, they introduce a third character who's kind of... I suppose a bit like Mother would be in the Avengers the new, when they yes, introduced that's Mother. Right, yeah, with Tara King. I, ha- so I have only yeah. skimmed the surface of Sapphire and Steel when it was on when I was a kid. It was uh, occasionally on rerun yeah. it and I would catch it. But maybe I'll dig into that after I've finished with uh, <laughs> Star Cops. <laughs> My favorite thing about the robots is that they are both played by the actors with the most fancy names in the whole cast. <laughs> Gregory Depolne. <laughs> Gregory Depolne and Miles Fothergill. <laughs> Fothergill. Yeah. Of the Hertfordshire Fothergill. <laughs> Great. Well, even if you go into the ones who are not credited, you've got Mark Blackwell Baker as one of the robots as well. That's not bad, but not quite as good as Fothergill or Depolne, but it's getting there. Yeah, posh names for um for a fairly ordinary part. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, except obviously... Oh, not obviously, but with hindsight, it seems obvious that in order to get those dispassionate, clean, clipped voices, you are obviously going to cast somebody from a well-to-do background. <laughs> Perfect got that diction. Kind of voice already. I never yeah. thought of that. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. <laughs> in a story about class, here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah. The yeah. robots are, the, 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 robots are the, uh, they're the, they're the upper class that you can never reach because you can never become a robot. Well, yeah. Helen Capel wants to be a robot, but he can never get there. Well, this goes to what I'm always saying about a decent story and a decent writer. Even if he's not doing it deliberately, Mm, his subplot reflects the main plot in some way and vice versa. And the main plot includes a hierarchy of robots. And the main plot is about the robots hierarchy, you know, place in the hierarchy of society. And then you've got this subplot about the aristocracy and the way the hierarchy 
in the aristocracy is affecting the characters that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the main plot, but they both reflect each other perfectly so that the entire production becomes all of a piece with itself and this really consistent whole. Great writing. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think the plot... Um, you know, it has been lambasted in the past. You know, you know, Stephen Moffat very uh, famously talks about how the the uh, status of it as a murder mystery is compromised by the fact that it's entitled "The Robots of Death." Yeah. I think that's a bit facile. I think it's not so much that the robots are the ones who are killing; it's the mur- it's the mystery of who's controlling the robots and the notions of um, you know artificial intelligence and how uh, robots. Uh, you know, are programmed, etc., um, are sort of um, more inherent to the plot than the fact that the robots are the ones going around killing people. But is it is there something to be said for the fact that there are key occasions where Mike Lee Bryant's direction perhaps uh, doesn't quite uh, serve yeah. the plot all that well? I've got to say, I kind of agree with Moffat in that they give you the title Robots of Death, they have this opening scene where they talk about how robots can go wrong so you know that robots can go wrong and do terrible things (laughs) so it's no surprise the robots are killing people two scenes later you see one of the characters getting killed by a robot robot. (laughs) so it becomes about who's doing it exactly and why exactly it's not just yeah it's not just the one question it's the two questions now the who's doing it I think there's, as I've said, I think there are great clues about who's doing it that you can pick up on mm-hmm. if you're looking for them. So in that respect, it works beautifully like an Agatha Christie thing where you're trying to mull over the clues so that you can work it out before they reveal it. I think what lets it down is the other question of why. And <laughs> in the end, it comes down to a human being who was brought up by robots that bit's great. I, lo- I, I like love that. the idea of a person raised by robots, like being raised by yeah. wolves. Yeah, you know, yeah. being raised by Romulus robots. and Remus. Yeah, there. and it's just a, a guy. And oh, by the way, this, one of those clues is you see Dask's face. <laughs> like you literally see his face. <laughs> I was only going to add, but when it comes down to, so he thinks robots should be equal or be in charge. That's to me. That just feels so obvious. It doesn't normally. If you've got a, a murderer. In an Agatha Christie thing, there has to be some clever twist about yeah. the reason for doing it, the motivation. Secret reason. And the motivation here, the being raised by robots bit, great, don't have a problem with that. But doing all of this so that robots can be equal or can be in charge, such an obvious thing to do. It doesn't have that twist of cleverness that would really have sold it as a concept, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think that's slightly a disappointing oh. thing, and that's kind of why... I think even though he made it in a sort of facetious manner, I kind of think Stephen Moffat's right in that you get to the end of the story and you haven't been given a killer reason for why the robots are doing all this killing. I think that's fair from one from that point of view, but I also know that this is you know Saturday tea time viewing for uh, the whole family <laughs> yeah, yeah, and exactly. kids in particular in 1977. And I've got to admit, coming to this through the Target book at the age of nine or whatever it was, the idea that there would be someone who had been raised by robots somewhere. Great. The logic doesn't yes, exist, yes. right? In the same way that Romulus and Remus were never, um, you know, raised by the she-wolf. That's not the point. It's 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 more so for me the fact that this is such a cool idea, and it echoes for me something that we've seen before in Seeds of Doom, which is where Harrison Chase is someone who <laughs> wants plants to be yes. in charge and to take over the world. <laughs> So in that regard, I think it's sort of uh, on familiar Doctor Who slash Hinchcliffe terms. 
and and I, I agree that it's maybe it's a bit of a simple cop out idea, but for me it's like offset by by um, Talon Capel by is it David Bailey? Yeah, yeah. By his performance at the end, and just the, how they, they go straight to a shot of him covered in silver paint, like he mm. he wants to be a robot so bad, yeah. And he identifies yes. a robot so bad yep. that he's made himself into a robot, which I thought was a sweet and b terrifying. <laughs> I loved it. No, and it was such a great. Because we watched it last night. I've said this a million times. We watched it last night, and I haven't seen it for a few years, and I forgot about that scene. Oh. And it was I just thought it was great, and it really and he's. His his delivery, I just thought, was just nailed it for me. He's in such a rage, isn't he? You can yeah. see him screaming, the eyes bulging out of his head. But mm. of course, he's trying to uh, look like a robot. Mm. There, it's it's obviously someone who's tipped over the edge in his robophilia. It's yeah, it's and, chilling. And he calls them my brothers. And yes. I feel like I feel like it's more that he's just so upset that um, yeah. robots are treated like slaves. Mm. How could mere humans destroy a robot? They are unarmed, weak creatures of flesh and blood. What are your orders, controller? Destroy them, seven. Kill all the humans. V6, come with me. I will release more of our brothers from bondage. We will be irresistible. I don't know if he knows about the dumb, the the, the speaking dumb robot, and the fact that robots can be programmed to be more intelligent, more, rather, because he's just reprogramming them to be his slaves, really. It, true, and I think also the fact that um, he probably sees the fact that there isn't a sort of self-awareness about them, mm. that sort of self-consciousness that animals. And he wants to elevate do. them. Yeah, and I, and so. I, I like that, and I also, but I, I was a bit like. But what are you going to do after that? He's like, we're going to take over the, the society. And I was like, but then what? Then it'll just be you and a bunch of robots. Well, that's always the thing, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> well, Har- what does Harrison Tro- Chase do with the crinoid pod? What do the Daleks and Cybermen do when they finally conquer well, the universe? But Harrison Chase wants people, he, he's willing to die he, cause to erase humans from the planet, right? He wants <laughs> plants to take over because he, he yeah. worships them, right? Yeah. Does Talon Capel want to be the... Tar- Sorry, it's Taron, Taron Capel. Does he want to be the, the leader of these robots when they're in charge? I guess he does, yeah. We're getting too deep. I'm getting into it. <laughs> Who cares? It's, I just love... He. I just yeah. think he nails it at the end and he was quite... It's not Euripides. There's no depth psychology here. <laughs> yeah. No. It's a small issue. And let's face it, the production, the dialogue, the acting, papers right over it so that you don't mm, yeah, care. Exactly. <laughs> But nevertheless, it is sort of an issue that's there. Oh, and by the way, we've just come to another one of the list of influencers that we have to put in our list of influencers box. Raised by robots, he's Tarzan of the Apes. Oh, nice one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely something else that's showing in the showing in the influences, isn't it? So he's raised by raised by robots, but he's got to learn to live in human society, which he does pretty well on the on the ship, right? He's, he's covered it, well, you think he does, but actually he's programming all these robots to kill the people he lives you know, with. He, so he puts on a good... I'd say maybe not so much. <laughs> but, he, but he puts on a good facade, right? Like in front of the other... Yeah, yeah. I guess he's pretty gruff. I'd right? be a bit like Tarzan running around country estate, having freed all the apes from the zoo, getting him to kill all the people he's been brought back to society with. Bye. And, he's, and I, I love how they put him in a robe for when just to, prepare, just to keep the mystery of who he is going. I say mystery. Oh, um, in the hood? In the hood. And yeah. then he's just digging the old, uh, like the laser, the laser probes <laughs> into their heads. I love the idea that it's someone like, so I guess Lasersun is a company that makes these probes, <laughs> yeah. I think. And yeah, someone's just yeah. like, we need a spacey future company name. And they're like, Laser, <laughs> Laserman? <laughs> Laserfood. Lasersun. That's it. Lasersun probe. Punches holes, collects crystals. Delivers CSO, you know, special effects. Does everything. I love, and it just kept, it just kept being in the in the foreground, the the nameplate. I was yeah. like, I, I get it. It's laser. The design team would definitely be yeah, proud of that. I one. loved it though. I love laser. It is a laserson probe. It can punch a fist-sized hole in six-inch armor plate, 
or take the crystals from a snowflake one by one. Yes, that's right. No handyman should be without one. It's great. It sells the idea that it's the real world again, doesn't yeah, it? It happens yeah. so rarely in sort of 70s Doctor Who that they'll put that level of detail in. Robert Holmes obviously was good at putting that level of detail mm, yeah, in, yeah. but a lot of the time elsewhere it's either not there or it doesn't work, and this works. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, Holmes loves world building, and it's just like one of those little things. And then they just use it to stab robots in the head with, <laughs> which is fine. But, no, but, yeah. uh, uh, oh, well, speaking of which... <laughs> The, the, it, this is such a great production that that final scene where it all, you know, where uh, the, the voice changer and all that stuff, <laughs> the final confrontation, there are so many shots of people <laughs> standing absolutely still waiting for the robot to get hold of them round the neck, followed <laughs> yeah. by another shot of the robot standing absolutely still waiting for the doctor or whoever to get that laser and probe in the yeah. hole that's been left there in the back of the hill. <laughs> It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shocker when compared to how good everything else is. Yeah. And it's forgivable. It's Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, there are some moments in that scene where you just sort of your jaw is kind of going. <laughs> yeah, I think I might be about to well, drop. It's right not about now. It's not action by havoc. I mean, you know, it hasn't been perfectly choreographed. No, no. And I want to see the timestamp on this. I'm sure this is quarter to ten on the last yeah. day, last night of recording. Yeah, on the BBC. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's forgivable. It's not the end of the world. It doesn't ruin a great story. But you can't help but notice it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things you can't help but notice, we were going to talk about a uh, a certain character who rather gives himself away on the screen despite the special effects. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, maybe there is an argument that it's 1977. They're watching it on TVs, you know, the size of an A4 piece of paper. Yeah, because I was, I, was, I was screaming. I was like, it's... It's just desk. There's no mystery. What's going on? And you were like, well, maybe no one had seen this special effect before. And like what you said, JR, the TVs are a lot smaller. and um, Yeah. More yeah. So maybe it was uh, harder to realise that it was desk. But to be fair, it, despite the fact that there were smaller tellies, despite the fact that they, um, you know, put a special effect in the camera effect, <laughs> they were taking a great risk, completely unnecessarily. They didn't have to have a video screen, mm. or they could have had him talking from off video yeah. screen, or they could have had him... Wearing a mask, kept him or in the something. hood. Yeah. There were any, yeah, that's yeah, true. There are any number of ways they could have done that, which didn't risk giving away. Let's face it, what's the only killer twist they've got left in their armory? Mm-hmm. Who's responsible? It was a big risk putting him in, putting him on the screen, and I can't honestly say why they did it, even in spite of these other sort of ameliorating factors. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't get it either. The only thing that it's possible is that it just they honestly thought that it wasn't going to be visible enough with the uh, top of the pops um, you know sort of special effects over the top I guess they just shot it and they said they'll they'll make it they'll make him yeah. uh, they'll hide his face properly and yeah. then they just didn't someone <laughs> went for lunch early I guess I don't know. Clive Clive god damn it speaking of um, special effects the, the the commentary track with Philip Hinchcliffe and Chris Boucher where they're sitting there saying, gosh, these re- special effects, they're so good for the time. They're so realistic. You can't tell that they're models. And I'm sitting there looking at this thinking, no, I could tell these were models when I was nine oh. watching it in 1977. <laughs> You're not fooling anybody, Mr. Hinchcliffe. <laughs> they're, they're very nicely done. Yeah. But no, they do not look like the real thing. <laughs> there is no real uh, drill ship floating on a sea of sand. But I love that. Yeah. I love that drill ship, and I love that. You you're said right. it was quite Thunderbirds, didn't you? Yeah, it did look very Thunderbirds. Yeah. You're right. You can't. It's not fooling anyone. I just love the idea of um, 
it's a little bit juny. I, I love the idea of like uh, this um, ship driving sure. along on these drill heads yeah. on a sea of sand, a planet that has a sea, a, sand, a sea made of sand. Mm. I love that idea. I yeah. don't think I, I can't think of anywhere else where I've where I've seen that before. I just thought it was a good idea, and they could sink into it. But it was cool. I loved it, and yeah. I just love the. I love that the model was really funny. I liked at the start how they um, they tried to do a shot where you can see into the bridge. And they've sort of like CSO'd yeah. a little strip of like the actors walking around as if they're in. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell what it was at first because it's so weirdly done, but I like it. It was okay. Yeah. 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 I don't, but, you know, on the subject of those kinds of things, the uh, episode one cliffhanger and the episode <laughs> two cliffhanger. Okay, let's throw a bit of peril because we've got a 25 minute break coming yeah. up. But, you know, a bit of peril that, let's face it, has absolutely nothing to do with what's really going on. <laughs> so the two, the first two cliffhangers are just there to be cliffhangers. And okay, the second one, the middle one, where it looks like the um, sand mine is going to die, take it, you know, di- uh, dive into the sand, killing everybody on board. Okay, nice bit of barrel, but got nothing to do with the story about the robots, yeah. has it? I love the bit. I don't know why I'm why this is popping into my head, but I remember when Ivanov is unconscious, the doctor picks him up and carries him down the corridor like a baby. <laughs> yeah. that was oh, so yes. That was so funny. I it's such a beautiful, understated, <laughs> unmentioned in the dialogue, yeah. you know, scene. It just looks gorgeous. Yeah. And it's just so about those two characters yeah. and about the two yeah. actors as well. Actually, it's fantastic. Actually, that's actually a really big point for me. Throughout the entire four episodes, there's, I don't know how many grace notes that are hit um, by, you know, whether it's performances or, or bits of dialogue or um, bits of direction as well or design. Um, it, it never ceases to just please in that way. Mm. Um, you know, there's that, you know, really tender scene between uh, Leela and Toos where she yeah. says, My tribe has a saying. If you're bleeding, look for a man with scars. Thank you very much. Which is brilliant, you know, naive, not naive, but like, a, a you know, something that her character would say, given her background, the mm. fact that this is her, her first story off her own world. Um, and, um, yeah, just like a number of really beautiful moments between characters. And, um, you know, that's the classic one as well, where the Doctor's carrying Yvonne off just so down the corridor. There. And, and this is your fourth Doctor who doesn't, you know, doesn't like to, doesn't, he thinks the affairs of uh, <laughs> yeah. mortals are, uh, are trivial. Yeah. And he's carrying this guy, you know, he's, he's, he's unconscious, mm. he's carrying him down the corridor. And like you said, with the, the bit with Leela and, um, and Toos, um, they let Leela, this character who's, for, for a lot of the show, her, the only character trait they give her is that she's a warrior. Yeah, which is all they give her for a lot of the time. They let her be a healer as well. In this mm, one, which is really, yeah, really true. Yeah. yeah, for 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 the Doctor who lacks that sort of tactile, touchy feeliness, the Fourth Doctor hardly ever touches the characters. He's not one who'll yeah. put his hand on somebody's shoulder. He's not one for hugging and all this kind sure. of stuff. For a character who really sort of lacks that kind of thing, to see him picking this guy up and carrying him down the corridor feels like a really important moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yet, it's so subtle and quiet that you don't even notice hardly that he's done it. And like you said, they don't they don't mention it. Like it's just they just show it. No. And that's, it. <laughs> that's great. But this is Robots of Death is another great example. And I've said this so many times, but you know, I'm a guest on your podcast. So I'll say it on your podcast please, too. Please. <laughs> Robots of <laughs> Robots of Death is another great example, and. It's just these three years, the Hinchcliffe Holmes years, and then again between Paradise Towers and Survival, of 
such great memorable dialogue being given to great actors who really roll that dialogue out that it becomes that there are great quotable bits throughout the entire history of Doctor Who but when you go into these three years here under Hinchcliffe and the three years at the end under Cartmel, those are the only times when almost every single line in every single scene of every single episode feels as quotable as everything else. It's almost a little bit like the feeling you get when you're reading poetry, when none of the lines seems to have any less import than any of the others. Even the really functional lines in Robots of Death have a quality about them that doesn't necessarily feel realistic, doesn't necessarily feel like characters might necessarily say quite those things in quite that way. But it's an example of the people making the television programme understanding, and this is what Stephen Moffat is often accused of or criticised for with his quotable quippy dialogue, the person making the programme understands that the people watching the programme know that they're sitting in front of a television and would rather be entertained than they would say, gosh, that's really realistic and that's exactly the way my next-door neighbour might have said that line. It's more important It's more important to give the audience something that they can respond to than something that reminds them of, you know, the fact that they're sitting there doing the ironing while they're watching the telly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. Well I, well, I think you've actually just answered the question we were about to ask you, JR, which is the question we ask <laughs> at the end of every every uh, talk through of an episode, which is, why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. I've said it. The people, the people making this knew that they were making something to entertain. So they have gone to town on making every single aspect of this story something that entertains an audience. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's it comes at a period of time where... You know, we already talked about Hinchcliffe and Holmes in that mm. era. It's, Great it's, era. It's not without um, accident that, you know, 10 million people-ish are, are tuning in every week mm. to watch this. Tom Baker is the Doctor and he's as enormous a star in Britain as, as anyone else might have been at the time. It's because he inhabits the role. He is Doctor mm. Who. And what we have here, I think, over four parts, you know, Chris Boucher bringing a script and Hinchcliffe and Holmes sort of um, producing it is... Uh, a perfected form of what Doctor Who is on Saturday night in 1977. I don't know if you can look too many other places to sort of find what Doctor Who is when it's distilled into its essence. Yeah. Uh, Robots of Death really does that for me. And it's, it's such a tight story. Like we said before, it's it's really well, it's really fun. It's a fun, like there's yeah. lots of shouting and there's lots of people being mean to each other. But <laughs> on a whole, it's just like a fun adventure. And we are in... Um, we are stuck inside all the, the whole time, and it's in a, it's a studio, but it's yeah. done well. Like the yeah, studio. you don't notice it. No, the sets are great. Like we said, people always go on about the design, but I mean, it is really good. Yeah. And, um, uh, the choices of actors for the cast is really good. <laughs> really high. Yeah, and the and the delivery, even even the story works. And uh, yeah, I love the robots. They're silly, but I love them. And I uh, I even love that they use that same room over and over again and just redecorated it <laughs> <laughs> to use for different different places on the ship. Do you know what this is? This is consummate storytelling yeah. that yeah. doesn't care that it's Doctor Who. Normally, a Doctor Who story kind of knows it's a Doctor Who story mm. and does Doctor Who things. Mm. This one kind of says, okay, you can put me out as Doctor Who if you like, but I don't care. I'm just going to be the story I want to be. Yeah. And, you know, I'll have the Doctor and his companion in my story, but 
I don't care that I'm playing to a Doctor Who audience. I'm playing to everybody. Uh, uh, yeah, I agree. And I think it does so um, in, the, in the way that all great Doctor Who does. It, it doesn't, um, it's not ashamed, I suppose, to go to those, those influences and those mm. antecedents to sort of look to Agatha Christie and Asimov and, and Frank Herbert in this case and say, bring me the best of all of these things yeah. and put it together and put a Doctor Who spin on it because Doctor Who is wonderful. And when done in that way, when it's, when it's a story that isn't about Doctor Who, then when it's about something else mm. uh, and, and um, really sort of you know, brings it right into a perfect 90 minutes, then the result is something as perfect as the Robots of Death. And, and again, this time mm. they're drawing again from such rich sub- like subject matter. There's so much good stuff to take. Yeah. And you've got, you can't go wrong. No, and you've got a Doctor character, Doctor and a companion who are kind of just there to move the to help move the plot along. Mm. But they just do it with so much charm. Yeah, like, I just love watching them together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about the different things that were going on here. I Robot, and you know, obviously, we also said things like Pygmalion and Tarzan of the Apes and Agatha Christie. Mm. All of these things are big enough and strong enough to be a story in their own right. And yet here, they're just a fraction of what's going on, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're about to, JR's about to dip into the cheese with us because we are about to do our segment, uh, Cliffhangers, Crackers or Clangers. (laughs) Here we go. Okay, so at the end of episode one, the Doctor somehow finds himself trapped inside a hopper, upon which he's almost instantaneously buried by what appears to be, I don't know... S- cereal, man. It's, yes, it's yes, for cereal. cereal. I reckon. <laughs> a delicious yeah, it death. Is. <laughs> it is, isn't it? They're certainly not rocks they're dropping on the actor. who has got to go back into the studio the following week. <laughs> All right, so this one sort of uh, comes at the end of the 25 minutes. It's not particularly related to the events that come before, but, you know, we need an ending at some point. Is it a cracker? Is it a clangor? It's not a crazy reason for him to go into the hopper. As soon as he goes in, you're like, don't go in there. But, I mean, there's a body in there. Yeah. And then he gets covered in breakfast cereal. uh, And he really goes under the surface. Like, it's pretty... Like, it goes on for quite a long time. And I think it's a little awkward. Like, it takes a long time for him to be buried, and it's just a bit weird. Sure. And the rocks are tiny, so I don't know. (laughs) I like the idea. Two things about this. Watching it at the age age of nine, this cliffhanger really, really works. (laughs) I really remembered this one. You know, when I came back to it years later, when the VHS came out, this cliffhanger was the thing I most remembered about the story. And the other thing about it is, it is... The most stupid cliffhanger in the history of this. We, I tell you what, we will organise for there to be a body in this killer yeah. cupboard because we're at killer 23 cupboard. and a half minutes and we need the doctor to climb into this killer cupboard. It's stupid. <laughs> it, it did, when I was a kid, it did scare me because I found the same time I saw that movie, I think it's Witness with Harrison Ford. And then a man falls oh, yeah, into yeah. a silo filled with wheat. And I, oh. my parents had to explain to me that if you fall into a wheat silo, you'll drown in this, in this wheat. And oh. I found that so terrifying that you could drown in, you know, solids. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that I remember yeah, this yeah. actually chilled me quite a bit when I was a kid. But yeah, looking at it now, it's pretty naff. I'm going to go with clangor. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, isn't it? Yeah. Clangor for me too. <laughs> I think we're unanimous then. Okay, so at the end of part two, everyone's up on the command deck. And uh, we find that there's pandemonium as... <laughs> Uh, the Doctor hurries to cut the power so as to save the sand miner from sinking into the sands below. 
Okay, I've got to say again, this is another cupboard of death <laughs> in story terms. It's got nothing really to do with the ongoing plot. And once again, it has really just been thrown in because they're coming up to 23 and a half minutes and they need something. And to be honest, the idea of this spaceship-sized vehicle sinking into the sand always struck me as ridiculous. Wow, well, it's a sea but of yeah, sand. on the other it's hand... It's a sea of sand, JR. It's not just a regular disc. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't think so. <laughs> Not under any... Okay, it's, sci... it's sci-fi. They can just about get away with it. But having said that, I think it's so well done, this cliffhanger, that I don't care that it doesn't matter. The acting, the editing, the ramping up, it just really, really works, this cliffhanger. So I'm going cracker on this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it is really, yeah, it is really frantic. The delivery is really good. Uh, I I do get your point about the, the like if they have this giant mining corporation ship that it will sink if the motors go off. Surely there must be a million safe like safeguards. Who cares? I'm getting too deep. In this crap. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of just them telling you there's danger happening. I think I, mean? I think it, it's inexcusable for me in some ways because it comes out of nowhere. Uh, and that's yeah, okay because, yeah. you know, you do need a cliffhanger and it is so well done, I agree. The real head-scratching aspect of this for me is Dask is behind this, but what would he gain from having the sand miner essentially, you know, blow up and be lost to the sands? What would his, uh, uh, you know, grand plan of taking over the planet and emancipating the, the robots come to if they were to have just sunk, you know, thousands of miles into this planet? And where's the danger if they can simply fix the motive units and the, and the, and the cables again in a minute and get, out and get out of the sand? Now, that's a good point. And here's another one of those Agatha Christie-like clues. Do you notice that afterwards at the start of part three, it's Dask who says, oh, I know what to go and fix? It's like, yeah. oh, interesting. He knows where to go and um, plus and it fix splits it. everyone up as well. I guess. Yeah, true, true. Anyway, we're getting, we're getting <laughs> into, into the weeds deep. again. This one's, it's like you say, Jr. Like it's pretty, like it's pretty panicked, and everyone's, um, everyone's nailing it. It's still a bit, it's a bit of a in betweener for me. Cranger. <laughs> I'm gonna go Cranger as well. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it is really, but I like it. Yeah, I enjoy it. It is well That's done. Cool. Okay, we come to part three then, and uh, at the end of part three, we see a. a one of the reprogrammed Vok robots descending upon the Doctor and of course he's been handed one of the corpse markers and carrying out his orders by throttling the Doctor seemingly to death. <laughs> Q-Tunnel. I love that I love that even when he's saying I'm going to kill you or i got to kill the Doctor he's saying it so calmly <laughs> yeah. in a normal blog voice just a dude voice. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's I'll tell you what spoils this though it's the you stand really still so the robot can get his hands around your neck because the guy inside the costume can't, can't really see. see what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what kills this cliffhanger. In terms of the story, it's the only one that actually Related to the plot. relates really to the plot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a robot trying to kill you. Yeah, but it's just it's just a little bit ham fisted, isn't it? Even the um even the you know, the Doctor and Yuvanov are standing there and the robot comes in and it's like they're standing there saying, right, which one of us does it want to kill? Oh, I don't know. Let's stand here and see which one it chooses. You know, that's a really odd moment as well in terms of the dialogue, you know, the script. You know, let's see which one it wants to kill. It's like, fair enough, here comes a robot, but you'd try and dash out there 
and see which one of you it follows. You don't just stand there and see which one it comes towards. And, and they also don't know that it's it's, it's there's, there's one robot program to kill one person. I mean, if it, if it was if we were in there, I'd be like, it's yeah, going to no, kill me yeah. after you. So let's let's <laughs> grab a laser and probe mm. and do what you do with laser and probes, which is stab stab a robot in the head, take care of it. Um, this one's yeah, it's lame. I don't know. It's just a little awkward. I maybe I'm being too hard on it, but I. Yeah, I never really, I never really liked it. I, I think you needed it. It's a payoff. You at, at some point in this story, you needed to have the Doctor being attacked by a robot. It comes at the end of part three. Uh, it is related to the plot. I think this is pretty successful. So I'm going to go a tentative cracker. I oh man, I yeah. There's so many times when he gets actually strangled by a robot that they could have put a cliffhanger instead, yeah. <laughs> instead of just walking towards with the uh, CSO red eyes. What about you, Jr? Um, uh, yeah, I'm, it's a it's a uh, clanger for me. Yeah, I think it's a clunker as well, <laughs> Frank. It's it it deserves to be there, but it just doesn't work really. <laughs> and we come to part four then, which is the Doctor and Leela disappear off into the TARDIS, leaving I guess Uvanov and uh, and Tus okay. Maybe I guess they're okay. <laughs> I assume they are, but it's kind of like they're I really running. I hope so. I can't bear the idea of Pamela Salem's character being dead. No, I wanted to get a little bit of some um, Tus Uvanov. Um, yeah. Um, can well, you thank you very much, much, Doctor. We couldn't have done it without you. Yeah, it's just like, well, we're going to take this ship back. Uh, there's only two of us to pilot this thing now. Uh, I guess we'll... Ooh, Split God the knows. profits. No robots either. What are we going to do? Yeah, anyway. Um, and then they, they're just sort of like, well, we've got to go. I'm going to say goodbye. No, we're going to go to the We're going to go. Let's say bye. Bye, bye. Q-Channel. It's just like... <laughs> got to get that. Got to get... And they get... And they get a really, really, really lame last line as well. Which is, you know, this is that period of the show when every episode needs to... Uh, The end of every final episode needs to land on something of a punchline. The old crap joke. And and here here it's just after you, little mouse, which is a joke he made like 30 seconds earlier. Yeah, exactly. How many times are you going to milk this joke, Doctor? And it even felt a little bit improvised, like it was Tom Baker who made it up and didn't want to let go of it. Possibly. He thought it was really funny. Maybe, yeah. But otherwise, they just... Either way, they get into the box and then it dematerializes, and, and I was sort of it. like, "Is that? Oh, <laughs> right, that's it. Okay, cool. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. That's... You do, you do need a scene where you get Tus and Yuvanov at least saying, mm-hmm. well, thank God for that. Yeah. It's over.' Mm-hmm. But but it's almost like you get to the end of the plot and the plot finishes itself, but nobody in the plot is watching the plot such that they've realized it's happened. <laughs> it's almost, it just kind of stops, doesn't yeah, it? You're like, oh, we're at the end. Oh, right, cool. Good <laughs> good one, everyone. All right, close down. Yeah. Is that Let's the go. end, I guess? Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, no well, worries. Ma- yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a reflection of just how frenetic and well, pa- or, you know, highly paced the story is. I think, though, you do need that bit at the end. Um, I do like the idea of the Doctor and the Companion or Companions disappearing. Troughton does this a lot, I, f- I find. His Doctor sort mm. of sneaks off at the end. And it's a oh, nice yeah. sort of noble sort of... Didn't um, feel... Mm. You know, the, the, story, the story of the Stranger, you know, the last act yeah. of that, he's, he disappears before anyone can thank him or ask him why. And I get that. I understand that. I just don't think it's particularly well handled mm. here. Yeah. And I think you needed to no. have... I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is they usually sneak off while they're in the same room as the people they've saved so that the audience gets to say goodbye even if the Doctor and the Companion aren't. But here, you haven't got Tus and Yuvanov in the same set. So when they sneak off, it's like they're sneaking off on the audience rather than the character. Yeah. Like they're just walking That's off as well. what it feels like to me, yeah. Yeah, if they're just walking off, it's not even a sneak. He's just sort of like, well, we're going to go. And it's like he either forgot about them 
or it doesn't care. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. Care. And I think because those three um, characters are well, two of those three at least, but certainly you know Ivanov at the end as well are so sympathetic to, uh, in terms of the way that they're portrayed. The audience wants to know they're okay, and I think it's not until the second or third viewing of this that I realised, oh, actually, they are okay. Like, for the first time at the end of this, I was like, oh, my God, did, did twos just die? And had to rewind it to make sure, but the idea of Pamela Salem dying is too much for me, yeah. so <laughs> um, I needed that reassurance. It's almost like the Doctor doesn't care what he's done. Yeah. He's yeah. done this good thing, but it's almost like he doesn't care about it. Yeah. It's just, oh, thank God, we're back at the TARDIS. Go, yeah. quick, now. So it's a quadruple clanger for me, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a clanger. Never mind. Um, my favourite... Oh. It has to be said, yeah, the, these are not a great set of episode endings, are they? <laughs> Which is such a shame when you consider the quality yeah. of the four episodes themselves. My my favourite um, yeah. my favorite ending is um, the one they didn't film was where Toos takes over the ship and takes it on holiday and just <laughs> go to the beach. There must be a beach in that sea of sand somewhere. Oh, no, there's no water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Never mind. There must be a resort. Where no, there's can... a, you're right. There's a deleted scene where two says, we're alive, we're alive. And Yuvanal says, yeah, and you're lovely, you're lovely. <laughs> and they just, because they're alive and they're so happy to be alive, Yuvanov has this complete character-changing moment where he realises it's not all about the money. It can be about the fun. So the two of them just go off and take the, and take the, the uh, sand miner off and go and live in it for the rest of their lives in the middle of nowhere as a pair of hermits who wow. are just happy to be alive. You really took that somewhere. That's how this story should have ended. Oh, wow. <laughs> they wouldn't have got all the spin-off books and audios and stuff yeah, as a big finish, they had, yeah. but that's where it should have gone. I'd like to imagine them just partying, kicking back on holiday somewhere. <laughs> No, 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 they have to go off and be hermits. For me, nothing short of that is good enough. All right. All right, that's your policy. I like it. We've come to the part of the show now, which we've been doing for a little while, which is where we ask Bridget, uh, our illustrious, sometimes third uh, panellist, uh, what she thought of the robots of death. In what did Bridget think? Well, let's find out. Now it's my turn. Right, Bridget, Robots of Death. Hi. Hey, Bridget. How are you? Good, what's up? Thanks for joining us again. Again. Dude, you're welcome. It's becoming a regular thing and we're loving it, so. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to start by asking Bridget, what did you think of the Doctor and the companion team? So Tom Baker and Louise Jamison as Leela. Okay, so Leela, not her fault, but what, what? What? It's What's the, costume, the leather? Isn't it? What is yeah. that tiny underpants costume? <laughs> yeah. It's so distracting. I couldn't take her seriously. I was just staring at her tan. I was like, dude, she's in space all the time. Why has she got full tan? Like, and also, why the leather? Because it makes her seem like, no like a Barbarella. Like Very I valid. I, I don't know. Barbarella, I that's disapprove a good... of oh. that costume. Okay, but the character, did she. Seemed okay. Okay. She wasn't my favourite. Who is your favourite? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> I like the one we had last time. Oh, when we watched Sarah Jane Smith? Yes. Okay. She's All good. Right. Cool. Oh, that's fair. Sarah Jane. Yeah, Sarah Jane Smith conquers a high watermark. Yeah. yeah, big time. 
Okay. And, and, and Tom? Tom Baker? He's, he's, he's your doctor, right? He's effortlessly the best doctor. He is effortless <laughs> at being Doctor Who. He is fantastic. Nothing fusses him. Even though he nearly dies like a hundred times in every mm. single episode, he's just like chill as. <laughs> you know, like every day he dies nearly. And yet he comes to every situation Takes with it in humor. his stride, yeah. Not like that. Yeah. He's, he's charming. All his crazy hair and crazy teeth. He's all, there's all these close-up of his, of his face. It was like, Whoa. It's the best. <laughs> there's that he bit where a panel slides away and he's in the, he's hiding in a cupboard and he's got yeah, this like, he's just huge like, smile. Hello. He's just like, <laughs> so what? Creepy. What is this? It's a serious moment. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's good. He's all right. Good. So, okay, thumbs up for the Doctor because obviously he's your favourite. And, yeah. and Leela's a bit of a, we'll see. Yeah, yeah I they don't know. put her in that tiny costume, right? I guess that was just an attempt to get dads to, you said the other day, it was kind of a thing to get dads to watch it the was. show. It was. And I also said the other day, like as a kid, I never noticed it. And maybe I'm still, I still got a blind spot around it. Maybe I'm just weird. I don't know. I definitely noticed it, but it didn't seem like a, a sexy thing to me when I was a kid. I was like, it's no. just a weird. It's so sexy, I was dude. Like, She's going to be. It was distracting. Yeah, like I can see that now. And like I was watching it. And my friend walked past and he was just like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, yeah, I'll stop watching this. So I was like, whoa, it's really weird and sleazy. Oh, yeah, because you, you watched it without us this time. You had to watch it without us without us there to patronize you all the way through, the way through <laughs> I know, it. I know, it was hard because I couldn't just like go, oh, what does this mean? I had to actually watch it. It was like, what? It's good. <laughs> it's good. It means you didn't have to. You I had to pay attention. I yeah. paid attention. Mm. It was good. But it's one of those stories that I guess it, it sort of stitches together, right? I mean, like a murder it's, mystery yeah. would. So it, it came off okay yeah, in that yeah. regard? Yeah, it was good. Okay. I would recommend it. All right. What did you like it. about it? Uh, I like the crazy costumes of the crewmen. Like, that <laughs> totally. was out of there, yeah. out there completely. My friend who walked past, we saw me watching, he was like, well, this looks like the craziest worst party of your nightmare like he's just walked in and there's this cosplay going on <laughs> and it's like crazy costumes from another dimension or or from the bbc's this like i think that's more likely yeah. <laughs> totally you don't think weird. they made them for shakespeare closet or something i don't know it was so weird shakespeare in space the party of your nightmare that's and what he said and they're um... like you're not dressed and you rock up and everyone's like <laughs> lost the plot yeah. And their weird nose makeup. That's what kept throwing yeah, me I love out. that kept weird dis- nose makeup. I thought distracted. that was cool. Mm. Do you reckon mm. someone's ever tattooed that to their face? I don't I hope not. Oh, that would be cool. God. I have to really love the robots of death. They would have to really love robots of death. Yeah. I think a lot I of people think do. If someone can please send us a photo of someone that they know that has well, tattooed that to their face, send that would it in. be that's a challenge to uh, our sweet dogs. Yeah. That's a pretty good it. thing. <laughs> All right, so this is this is roundly regarded as a classic, and like many people will, will you know, say this is top ten Doctor Who. Really? I, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I'm. I don't know if it's too far out of it for me even, but yeah, I think I think you know top twenty, top yeah. twenty five certainly. Sure. Um, but is there anything you didn't like? I thought it was a bit long. Like oh. I knew it was going to happen. It's four parter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not long episodes. As someone who's more used to the old new Who forty five minutes and the story is done True. kind of mm. thing. I guess you're, um, yeah, sometimes, even I, man, I struggle with four parts sometimes. It's two hours and it's, it's they, they put filler in there and stuff. Mm. So, you, so it was a bit long? Yeah, maybe a bit long. But one thing I really liked about it was how they, they put this weird like effect on the robot's eyes. So you knew that was an evil robot. Because uh. otherwise <laughs> it'd just be like, which one's the good robot? I don't know. But then you're like, ha, huh. 
cheesy effect. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. And I love how all the effects are so dated. There's all the green screen. It's all the sand coming in. It's like, ah, oh, it's so awesome. <laughs> and from another time, I, I love that part of it. Mm. Like, you don't get that anymore. No, that's true. It's very BBC 1970s. Yeah, so so it's bit, bit of comfort food. You know, anyway. those model, yeah. those models, those those like small models, but they haven't slowed down, so they just look like tiny models. They're so good. I miss that. They're <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right, so Bridget's finding it difficult to find something to not like. So I'm going to assume is this a recommendation? Thumbs up. Unless you are a feminist, then you will dislike it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Because that outfit, you can't go oh, past yeah. it. You're just like, what? That is so <laughs> sexist and bad. It's like, no. There's not. Does she always wear that, that little leather outfit? I think outfit? she wears pretty much except for one story. A yeah. few different oh. leather outfits, right? Yeah, there's oh. two. There's two. Oh, man. Is one, the other one better? This is probably better than the other one. <gasps> I, guess oh, they try to, I guess they try to back it up with the fact that she's like a tough warrior person, but they've really just put her in a bikini. kind She of. didn't seem that tough. She didn't do a lot of fight stuff in, in Robots of Death. In other ones, she's quite, she can be quite... She was gr- quite nurturing. She was looking after yeah. the ladies. Jeez, yeah. I love that. I love how they I gave like her... I like that. Yeah. Can I ask what you made of maybe one of my favourite characters in, in classic Doctor Who, which is Toos, played by Pamela Salem? Is it the, the command, second command? Yeah. I liked her. I think she was cool. Yeah, but why? Why? What, what are you asking for? No, just, what? you know, have a thing for... I loved, loved her outfit. She got good ones, actually. She was <laughs> oh, the, the only one who got good ones. The ice cream wafer on the head thing? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. And the flowy, flowy thing. Ugh, that was good. She's great. Mm. We, she got good good dialogue, too. She took over. Yeah, That's yeah. That's kind yeah. of cool. Yeah. I it's like good her. to see like a strong female lead yeah, in 1977 BBC Doctor Who. With yeah, being clock. rescued by a scantily clad Barbarella. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> she is Barbarella. She is scantily clad Barbarella. Just a very Jungle posh lady. public school Barbarella. <laughs> I love how Pre-Zena, she's... Zena. I love how she's supposed to be a savage warrior, but her addiction is, is impeccable. It's marvellous. That's so true. <laughs> I didn't know she was supposed to be a savage warrior. That did not come across uh, in this episode. This is the first yeah. time I've ever seen her. Didn't the tinfoil knife tip you off? Oh, no. Yeah. No, that's pretty <laughs> savage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, so bummer on, on Leela. Uh, the costume, I guess. I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the yeah that's the only thing. Okay. But other costumes, wow, that, that's out there. They're so also out space. there. It's weird. <laughs> cool. <It's> so weird. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Bridget. I think that's a thumbs up from Bridget. Thanks so much for doing it. Brilliant. As ever. We love having you. Thank you. No worries. If you're a partner or girlfriend or boyfriend of dogs that are making you watch this, it's not going to be that bad. It won't go fast, but it will be okay. It won't go fast, but it'll be okay. That's Bridget's final word. That's as ringing an endorsement as we're going to get. Great. Tom Baker is hilarious. Amazing. (laughs) Thanks, Bridget. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, there's uh, Bridget's unique take. So we've got... Uh, Pretty resounding. <laughs> as always. Excellent. <laughs> I'm quite astonished. I'm amazed that she had the temerity <laughs> to come on this podcast <laughs> and say what she's just said. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's why we love her. I can't, I'm, I'm just great. <laughs> so it's that time again of the month where we're going to be sharing the love. This time, two fine New Zealand podcasts and friends of ours, The Zeus Plug and Beyond the Sofa. Uh, please go check them out. Um, Zeus Plug and Beyond the Sofa, great New Zealand chaps. 
So we've come to the end now of our episode on the robots yeah. of death. We need to thank J.R. Southall from the Blue Box podcast mm-hmm. for guesting and doing a fantastic <laughs> job tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, J.R. It's been a real privilege and always good to chat. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys, for having me on. I've had you on my podcast. <laughs> I never thought I'd get the opportunity to be on yours because of the way it was set up. And now that's one I've been able to tick off my <laughs> bucket list. Oh, we were always going to have you on for sure. Can you um, maybe give us a sneak peek of what's going on in the next little while? Blue Box podcast, I never know more than about an hour in advance <laughs> of what we record, what Love we're it. going to be recording. And in fact, the one we recorded an episode last night um and actually it wasn't till we were all assembled in the room with the microphone turned on <laughs> that we actually knew what we were doing <laughs> and the magic happens i love your i love your fearless method of um, almost no editing and you just let a conversation flow yeah, yeah. fluffs and all i love that i really love it i tell you what we are doing though because we started a little way into moffat's run and because moffat's run's been quite long and we have reviewed obviously all the episodes he's done since we started we decided or i decided on our behalf to go back and do the two seasons we missed ah uh, yeah so we're currently series early six. in series six yeah. cool. and our reviews of the series six stories are so actually when i say i don't know what we're doing i don't necessarily know which weeks we'll be recording <laughs> series six reviews but we will be doing series six reviews for you know the next few weeks oh, fantastic looking forward to that and so well cool we're at the end so uh what are we gonna do next month steve it's a six doctor story a six doctor story that we haven't looked at before we haven't done any six no, not at all we've been kind of have we been avoiding i don't know if we've been avoiding it's a good question isn't it look it's a divisive period very um and it's nonetheless one that needs to be examined Mm. the story that we're going to be looking at is perhaps quintessential of that era and i'm going to say that for good and for bad so we're going to be doing vengeance on varos and i think we're going to be pleasantly surprised in terms of what we uncover Mm. and who we uncover it with (laughs) oh yes excellent You can buy the DVD of The Robots of Death from BBC Online or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New Who on Twitter at New Who Podcast and also on Facebook. We can even email us at newtowhopodcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtowho.com, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like clicking subscribe or leaving a review, these things are a wonderful help to us. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm JR. I'm Dan. And I'm Stephen. Thanks very much. Thank you. See you.